0: Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. So dad, how are you doing today?
1: I'm good. I'm really happy to be talking with you as usual.
0: Yeah, same. And I'm actually really particularly excited for this episode today, which I've been looking forward to actually for a little while here. Today I want to explore an idea that's had actually a really big impact on the way that I personally think about both psychology and personal development altogether. We all have things in life that scare us. Some of us are scared of spiders, or earthquakes, or the dark, as I was as a kid. Most of these things we can kind of push back against, or at least do our best to avoid. We can squish a spider, although I'm generally an advocate for trying to rescue them when possible, or we can turn on a nightlight. But then there are other deeper, more personal fears. Maybe a fear of vulnerable, open connection with another person, a fear that we aren't worthy, a fear of putting ourselves out there, asking for what we really want, being seen by other people, of shame or anger, or even having things just be still and calm inside ourselves. Some of these fears can become so core to who we are that we start to organize our lives around not having to experience them. These are our dreaded experiences, and they exert a quiet power over how we live our lives. So today we're going to talk about those dreaded experiences. What are they? Where do they come from? And what can we do to work with them or maybe free ourselves from them altogether? So I'd like to start by saying that there's a lot of material related to fundamental fears of different kinds out there in psychology and a lot of material also on the ways that we can organize ourselves around different kinds of fears. But I think that the phrase dreaded experience is actually a Rick Hansen original, and I've never really heard anyone else explain this idea quite the way that you do, so it's hard to have a truly original take on something, and I wanted to give you uh, some appropriate credit here.
1: Ah. Thank you, especially from your kids, you know, who are some of the (laughs) toughest
0: audiences. (laughs) The ultimate skeptics. Yeah, absolutely. So I gave a kind of basic introduction into what a dreaded experience is in the introduction to the episode. Uh, But I'd love to start with kind of your take on it. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Or maybe what were you kind of seeing in human nature when you came up with this phrase?
1: Yeah. So the essence of it is not original to me. I don't want to claim that, but I will definitely talk about how how I think about it. So I'll use myself as an example. So when I was a kid, I skipped a grade. I was really young going through school. And I, through my mom in particular, wanted people to think well of me on the one hand, yet on the other hand, much of the time, that I was actually noticed by either my parents or my older peers turned out badly. Mm, mm -hmm. (laughs) So that put me in a kind of a double bind. You know, in the classic line, I wanted to stick my head up above the poppies, but then the tall poppy, as the Australians say, would get cut off. Or in the Japanese proverb, the nail that stands out would get hammered down. So I, I was ambivalent about being seen, but I longed to be seen in ordinary third grade kinds of ways. But I was afraid of being seen.
0: Mm, mm-hmm.
1: And so what would happen then naturally is that there would be this three-step process. And I think this three-step process is a kind of like lapse around the triangular track. It's a track with three sides, three-step process. First step, there's a natural expression of the self. We want to be seen. We want to share an idea. We hope that people will be impressed by us, let's say. We want others to be nice, to move closer, to connect with us. Or maybe there's an expression like we're angry about something or we're hurt about something or we don't understand something. There's some natural expression of the self. That's step one. Then step two is the associated expectation of pain. In my case, the natural expression was the desire to speak up in class, share my idea, and along with it, maybe have other people think, oh, he's smart. And so that was like the first step. But then the second step was, Ugh, I was afraid that if I was seen, people would think I was big for my britches or they would find fault with what I had to say, or they'd point out that I was trying to be all uppity, and which would then make me feel bad. That's the dreaded experience in the second step of the triangular track. And I would feel, in my own example, kind of worthless, unwanted, crummy, okay? Shame, a version of shame. And then in the third leg of the triangular track, boom, the defense against full self-expression. So I would shut down. I would numb out of my body. I would get kind of sleepy and dissociative. I would not let myself speak up. Maybe I would... Say something as an attempt to look cool that wasn't really what I was going to say, which also would flop, whatever it might be. And that fundamental process, three steps, right? Natural expression of the self, expectation of pain, defense against natural expression of self can happen in three quarters of one second because the brain is so fast, especially with learning. The problem is that that understandable process of inhibiting ourselves to avoid risking even the dreaded experience leads us to live smaller and smaller and smaller than we really need to. So that eventually we're functioning inside the bars of an invisible cage. And part of the problem with that is that when this way of life becomes the new normal, we're not aware of what we are contracting away from. We're not aware of the ways we are smallifying ourselves. It just becomes taken for granted. So the path then is progressively, step-by-step, in little steps, risk the dreaded experience. And we're gonna talk about all this in detail, I know, but I wanted to give this overview here. I think it's a
0: great overview and a great summary to kind of summarize the summary a little bit of what you just said. One of your talents, Forrest. (laughs) Well, thank you, yeah. So we have this three-step process, as you said. We experience some kind of emotion or have some kind of desire. This is generally, in my experience, associated with some form of self-expression, but it can also relate to kind of more primal body-based fears sometimes. Um, As an example, let's say that your desire is to express appreciation for a friend, to express love for somebody else, or maybe in your case, dad, to be seen in a certain kind of way, as a certain kind of person. Yeah. So that emotion or desire then sparks the belief that, quote unquote, something bad will happen if we express it. There's an expectation of suffering.
1: And I will feel like crap.
0: Yeah, I will feel like crap, the bad thing will happen, I will be that nail that stands up that gets hammered down, whatever. Again, in our example here, there's a fear that you will be shamed or maybe even abandoned by other people if you express this desire. And then third and finally, that fear causes us to inhibit our behavior. We don't want to risk that dreaded experience, so we make ourselves small, we limit our expression out in the world. And in, I'm gonna say extreme cases here, but my true belief is that this is actually not an extreme case. I think that most people live their lives this way. In most cases, that fear, that inhibition, exerts this really profound influence over the course of our life. Think of all the little ways in which that not expression can add up over time, whether it's in a interpersonal relationship, or it's in our career path, or it's in just kind of staying on the straight and narrow the the safe road in a certain kind of way, because we're too afraid to venture out into what we really want to do or who we really want to be. And that's, you know, a profound idea. So I think that there's a lot going on here. We'll kind of unpack it a little bit more. I want to start by emphasizing that different people have different organizing fears. The fear tied to your dreaded experience is, generally the most uncomfortable psychological fear you personally can think of. So for some people that might be shame, but for other people it could be anger, uncertainty, whatever else. So we've given a few examples here already, but in your experience, what are some kind of common dreaded
1: experiences? Mm -hmm. I think implicit in what you said is that there's in effect a surface layer of dreaded experience. So let's say that So I'm gonna make a key point here, which is that it's not the dreaded event. It's the experience we'd have because of the dreaded
0: event, Mm -hmm.
1: okay? So the other kids, let's say in third grade, I say something, I'm trying to be smart, but in fact I say something stupid and the other kids laugh at me. And so that's the event that's certainly dreaded, but why do I care about them laughing at me? Well, because it makes me feel like crap.
0: Yeah, this is a great point here. If you were able to laugh along with them, it would no longer be a dreaded experience.
1: That's right. Exactly right. To build on a point that you've really emphasized, including in our book, Resilient, the thing that really gets us is not what is happening, but how it feels or how we fear it will feel. Mm -hmm. So let's say that at the surface level, the dreaded experience is when they, let's say, laugh at me, it's embarrassing in the moment. Okay. But what that then reaches down into and reactivates and stirs up and is turbocharged by our deeper underlying, very primal experiences of being worthless, unwanted, and vulnerable to abandonment or exile in a really deep way in this example. And so it's helpful for people to appreciate what might be inside themselves, the kind of really deep underlying at bottom dreaded experience that anchors all the other more shallow ones or shallower ones or more minor ones that rest on top of it. So to answer your question then, a primal dreaded experience certainly is related to shame and abandonment that can get extremely young for us. That's one. Another dreaded experience is loss of control. People are nervous about losing control, which then could lead to other really difficult experiences they might have another one that can come up for people which is really interesting is that they can fear becoming powerful and potent because then when they get powerful and potent maybe other people will no longer take care of them because they're independent they're on their own or if they're powerful or potent that would lead them into aggression and conflict with other people so that's another one i've seen and then another one I've, I've seen for people is fears of failure, that they're gonna try and just fail. They're gonna be disappointed. So they keep deferring, going all in, right? And they keep reserving for the last battle rather than being fully committed to, let's say, writing that book or asking that person for a promotion. Because if they defer one day after another, actually taking that step, then they can preserve the hope that it will go well. But if they actually take the step and they get refused or there's a failure, you know, they're exposed. And it's proven now that it wasn't going to work, which is really uncomfortable. So those are some. um, Maybe I'll just stop there and see if you have any to add from your own experience.
0: Well, I mean, why not just go really deeply personal here and talk about my dreaded experiences, hey? Yeah. So I'm joking a little bit, but I'm also largely deflecting with humor here a little
1: So there are a couple for me. So right there for us. Mm -hmm. What would you experience (laughs) if you were really real right now? What do you fear you might experience if you were really real right now? Or what that would lead to?
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's a great question. I mean, I think that for me in this forum on the podcast, I think that there's a desire to make it fun or to not be boring as a podcast host. That's kind of a very surface level one. I think that the kind of deeper things that that goes over is a a desire to feel good at a thing because I want to be perceived as competent inside of this space and all of the associated shame feelings that can get tied to, well, we have this thing that, you know, it's kind of crazy, but tens of thousands of people listen to this podcast. Whoa, you know, that's a pretty exposed situation. So I do think that sometimes I can kind of Orient my behavior on the podcast to present a certain kind of character that I think will be most consumptible for the people who are listening to it as opposed to The kind of maximally authentic version of who I am and so when we start to talk more about Hey Forrest, what are your dreaded experiences like that's pretty personal and I've gotten to a point with my relationship with those dreaded experiences that I feel comfortable talking about them publicly in a format that a lot of people are going to download. But still I think that there's a certain amount of resistance associated with it and I need to use some kind of soft coping mechanisms like a little humor deflection or whatever else to kind of get comfier with them. So a great question dad. So that kind of ties into one of them I think which is absolutely around this idea that I just won't be that interesting for, lack of a better way of putting it, that I'm just not that appealing or cool or whatever else. And even one layer down from that is a very fundamental one for me, which I think is a fundamental one for a lot of people. Feeling like a bad person is how I'll say it. classic example of this is way back in childhood when my uh, sister was born and I went from being the absolute golden child to only getting, gosh, half of the attention You know, how horrible must that be for a little kid?
1: You got less than half.
0: Yeah, less than half. You have a newborn child. Yeah.
1: That's what happens when someone's, yeah, nearly three and then an infant comes along. It's unfortunate, but real. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's this kind of story that gets told inside of our household about having the experience of me being a little kid and kind of going into the uh, parental bedroom And basically saying, I feel like a bad person. I feel like a bad knight is what I said exactly.
1: Bad soldier.
0: Yeah, bad soldier. And that feeling of kind of exile from the parental unit, which gets into something we'll talk about in a second, which is where do these experiences come from? And a lot of them are very primal and very young developmentally. Like these are the experiences that we had as a little kid. Another one that's maybe not quite as deep for me, but is still certainly there is fears that relate to anxiety. And for me, I think that that manifests as loss of control, like you were saying before. The feeling that if I'm not kind of driving the car, something bad might happen when the other person is driving the car. And I don't think that that one's as like deeply psychological, but it's absolutely a tendency that I have that's created some maladaptive behaviors in my relationships, for sure. And I've definitely had to work with it. So those are two for me. And I think they're pretty common ones. Other ones might be, as you were saying, Dad, like being viewed as too strong. You could also be viewed as being too weak in a variety of ways.
1: Well, I'm very touched as a father and also as someone who's kind of a therapist at this point by training in nature, by what you've said there, Forrest. And I want to kind of highlight two things out of what you said. One is that it's normal to avoid certain kinds of experiences, right? putting your hand on the stove and burning, or to do appropriate little things as we interact with other people to avoid trouble and keep things on a good keel and avoid looking like an idiot or a jerk. You know, there's a place for that kind of stuff. So it's it's not categorically problematic that we try to avoid certain kinds of experiences. It's completely understandable. It's when that avoidance begins to constitute an invisible cage that flattens our Self-expression flattens our growth trajectory through life because we're playing smaller than we need to play and feels burdensome and depressing even. So that's where it's problematic. And then the other thing I wanna point out just related to your example is that this structure of effectively the memory of the dreaded experience very often is grounded in really normal range experiences in life. Trying to compete in sports and coming in second place and feeling horrible about it and just saying, forget it, I'm never gonna compete in sports again. For example, it's not that there was a trauma there, it's just that it was a normal kind of developmental experience. Having a, a sibling come along, I had that too. I was like you, first born. I'm sure I had my own emotional injuries related to when my sister came along. And so it doesn't mean that people have to have had terrible life situations to be functioning within the bars of a small invisible cage. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I think that dreaded experiences can come from a lot of different places. It doesn't have to be per se a traumatic event or what we might commonly think of as being a fully traumatic event, although it certainly can be. A lot of the time, it comes back to the impact of our early childhood experiences, the things that happened to us when we were really, really young. And particularly to use a line that you've said in the past that kind of stuck with me. What did you learn about the world when you were young? And how does that learning infiltrate our understanding of our relationships and dynamics with other people today? To just share a little bit here, maybe think about this while I'm saying it, if you're listening. And some of these questions might be useful for you, some of them might not be, but they're all questions that I've thought about at one time or another, and I found some of them really helpful for me personally. One thing to ask yourself is, what was your relationship like with your parents? What were the dynamics that you had with them? Who was allowed to express power and who wasn't? Who was allowed to be angry and who wasn't? And alongside that, what were the experiences that you were permitted or not permitted when you were a child? What were the things that you were allowed to express and what could you not express safely? What were some of the painful experiences that you had with other kids? What did you learn about the way that relationships with other kids worked when you were young? What kind of a person did you feel that you had to be with other kids in order to be liked maybe? Maybe what did your experiences teach you about the way that the world was or the way that other people were? Uh, You can actually think about this almost archetypally if you would like. Uh, Were you taught that other people were basically good or basically bad, basically trustworthy or basically untrustworthy? How were you punished? How are you held apart or away from other people? If you want to go big picture, what were maybe some of the big cultural schemas that were in place that curtailed certain kinds of behavior that you might have wanted to express? Were you taught that that's just not what people like us do, whether like us represents a ethnic group or a gender group or something else entirely? Finally, were you really permitted to be who you felt you really were? Or were you taught that there were behaviors that you felt were fundamental to you? Whether that was the expression of certain kinds of emotion or being a certain kind of person or whatever else that were actually bad in some way, distasteful, disgusting, problematic, just things that you couldn't be. And you can kind of blow this up into your life today altogether. How do those things infiltrate your life today? How are there residues from those beliefs that are still clinging to you now? And which of those are useful? As you were saying, Dad, there are useful things we learn when we're young about things not to do with other people. You know, you you gotta curtail your behavior a little bit to live in a polite society probably. But what's not useful that's there? What's there that's holding you back? What's there that's repressing your behavior? And do you still want to feel that way? Or do you want to feel maybe a little differently? So that's my spiel. That's my list. What do you
1: think, Dad? Great list. Kind of a structural summary that I think of is in terms of three categories. Number one, what kind of experiences did you have as a kid, as an adult, that you directly experienced that are sources of, dreaded experiences. Second, what did you observe other people experiencing? For example, I've talked with many people over the years who had a sibling who was real rambunctious or loud or strong-willed or just feisty, and they saw a lot of punishment or difficulty coming at uh, their sibling, and so they basically took away the lesson, don't be like that myself. Or maybe just going through school, you saw someone or you were in a work situation and you saw someone getting ostracized or shamed or cast out or fired or something happened to them if they challenged authority. So then you said to yourself, whoop, never challenge authority. It could feel horrible. So that's the second source, vicarious observation of a dreaded experience. And then third, what do you imagine could happen? You never had it happen to you. You never saw it happen to another person, but you just sort of imagined it based on your own reflections. For example, you might have thought to yourself, for whatever reason, that, you know, it could go really badly if I come up with an idea at work and put it out in meetings and people don't like it. And then I would feel really bad if people don't like my idea. So I'm just based on imagining. It never happened to me because I never put it out. It isn't like I've seen another person get punished for coming up with an idea at a meeting, but I just worry about it. I just think it could happen, so I'm going to stay away from it.
0: I think that's a great structure. Yeah, and it's a really good way to think about it. Again, to emphasize, everyone's going to be a little bit different here. And this is something where it's really about personal reflection and coming to yourself what you think your dreaded experiences are. Then for me, even just identifying that I had a dreaded experience was a huge part of kind of coming to terms with it. Uh, because you can start to see all of these little ways that it infiltrates your life and it affects your behavior sometimes in very very subtle ways and then you start to kind of see it everywhere which can be revelatory on the one hand and pretty frustrating on the other hand so let's start to talk a little bit about how we can begin to risk those dreaded experiences or work to relax those fears You generally have a three-point plan to the three-point plan, Dad. So I'm going to toss this question to you because I know you've got some ideas here.
1: (laughs) Well, that's great. Uh, Well, first off, I think it's only important to highlight a key word here, risk. Mm, mm -hmm. That's the idea, that it could happen. So we don't even want to risk it, but because we don't want to risk stepping outside the bars of our invisible cage, then we stay inside our invisible cage. And we never test the theory that if I were to push on those bars, I would feel terrible, right? So we then continue to live in the frame of that belief system because we've never subjected it to the tests of actual reality. So risk. And a way into this also is to think about what happens when you're a kid, especially. Sometimes this would also describe certain kinds of situations as an adult, depending on what your situation is. Number one, bad events happen a lot. There you are as a kid, people are criticizing you a lot, everything you do is wrong, you're at school, other kids are kind of indifferent or mean to you, bad stuff happens frequently. So the odds of it are really high when you're a kid. Second, when it happens, you feel horrible because you're a kid. Your nervous system is sensitive. Literally, there is insufficient or there's incomplete maturation of the nervous system in childhood. And there's research that shows that typically young children feel things more intensely than as we get older. And by the way, this is analogous to what non-human animals might be experiencing as well, which calls us to be kind to them, because the intensity of their suffering could be akin to the intensity of the suffering of young human children as well. So Second part, it hurts like hell. Third part, you can't do anything about it. You're seven years old. You're seven months old. You're 17 years old. You don't know how to cope with these feelings. Yeah, you don't have a credit card. You can't get away from the jerks. Yeah, you're a prisoner. You're not able to leave school, or if you do, you get in big trouble. And you don't have good coping skills internally. You don't know how to to manage your reactions. You haven't been listening to the Being Well podcast and mainlining Forest Wisdom. (laughs) And that's how it is. So based on all that, right? There you are as a kid coming into adulthood, transferring into adulthood how it was for you as a kid in terms of these three features. High likelihood of bad event, which then would lead to feeling horrible, which you could do nothing about or real little about, right? But as an adult, each one of those three assumptions is probably really wrong. First of all, the frequency of a bad event, if you do, for example, speak up or something like that—is not at all as high as it was when you were a kid because you're with different people and you've been choosing different people. And also you're functioning in more adult environments where people are usually more polite and kind of controlled than they are when you're in seventh grade. So number one, the likelihood of the bad event is vastly less than what it was when you were a kid. Second, how bad it would feel is probably also not at all as terrible as you expect because you're an adult. You've got layers of buffers inside. You know, you might feel bad for an hour, maybe a day, but that's kind of about it. So you're not likely to feel as bad as you expect you would even if, in the unlikely event, the dreaded experience occurs. Third, even if the unlikely event happens, and even if it still feels pretty bad, now as an adult, you have many more ways to cope with it. You can be mindful of it. You can bring self-compassion in. You can change the channel. You can leave the room. You can drive away. You can do one thing or another to, you can confront the person who's been messing with you and assert toward them in a way you couldn't, let's say, as a kid. So it's really helpful kind of structurally to appreciate that the expectations that underlie the maintenance of the bars of your invisible cage are really wrong today, probably, compared to the way it was when you acquired those expectations when you were young. Mm -hmm.
0: Great summary, Dad, of a lot of stuff. And kind of relating to that, as somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, Wrinkles and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OSO1 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code being well at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information, because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast that's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science & Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value, and making it a priority in our lives, is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash beingwell today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash beingwell. Elemental memory is extremely powerful. Mm-hmm. You might not be able to consciously remember what happened to you when you were five or six years old, but part of you remembers, even if it's on a very subconscious, very deep level. There's a lot of interesting research into books, for instance, like The Body Keeps the Score, which talk about trauma memory in the body and things like that. The long and short of it is that we don't know exactly what's going on, but the developmental memory of the brain, of the body, of the whatever else is extremely powerful. So just because you're not conscious of these things doesn't mean that they aren't happening to you. And alongside that, one of the powerful practices that I've found is putting myself very much in the present moment. And you can talk about that from like a mindfulness perspective, you know, be in the present moment. But I mean it kind of literally, (laughs) like remembering that I am here now and not there then is actually a really powerful practice because it reframes everything as you're saying in terms of your current capabilities. It's not about, oh, I'm having this sense memory of being a seven-year-old on the playground with the other kids and they didn't like me and that felt really bad. It's no, I'm here today with friends that I have chosen who have shown in a hundred different ways that they really like me and really want to support me and yet I am still curtailing my behavior. Wow, isn't that interesting? And that's the way that has been really helpful for me to approach it. Now, to be clear, this is still a work in progress. I am still curtailing my behavior in a variety of different ways with these groups of people. But there has been some movement there, there's been some growth. And the more that I've been able to very carefully kind of give myself, and I'm going to use a term a little bit incorrectly here, but bear with me, give myself a sort of gentle exposure therapy, where I take little versions of risking the dreaded experience, little ways where I can do it and still feel safe and secure inside of myself, where I'm doing it enough to feel a little destabilized, but not so much that I'm not willing to do it at all, has been a very, very powerful practice for me.
1: Well, you are highlighting the real essence of the practice that you and I are talking about. And for me, honestly, the process of risking the dreaded experience uh, has been definitely in the top five, personal growth, personal healing, methods I know, absolutely, including with some uh, sort of bonuses that we're gonna talk about in a minute. So to kind of go into it then, first, it really helps to recognize that you're on the triangular track. And where we usually notice it is in the third leg of the track, the implementation of the defense against the full self-expression in order to avoid the dreaded experience, or actually in order to avoid even risking the dreaded experience. That's usually when we notice it. And for example, there you are in a conversation and someone is maybe making a kind of bid for greater closeness. Maybe they're being a little more self-disclosing or they're being particularly warm with you that normally would kind of draw us toward them. But maybe based on our history, when we move into greater vulnerability and depth of intimacy with other people, then we got embarrassed or people made fun of us or they said you're being needy or weak. And so uh, we wanna stay really far away from that. So then we very rapidly move into making a joke or being a little argumentative or becoming intellectual to create more distance again with that other person and establish what is for us more of an optimal distance, okay? Where we notice the enactment of all this often is when we ask ourselves, why did I pick a weird little quarrel with that person right after they paid me a compliment? And so you work backwards. So very often where you're working backwards is from that third step. And then over time, as you were saying, it's really useful to through self-awareness, essentially, and uncovering. You become more knowledgeable about the dreaded experience and then even more, you know, the first step of the track, what was it that you really wanted in the first place? The natural movement of your heart that unfortunately you feared would then lead to you feeling terrible. Okay, so one, mindfulness of this. Two, just what I said a second ago, it really helps to push on the expectations and help yourself understand logically, reasonably, that the dreaded events are much less likely to happen. Second, if they did happen, the dreaded experiences would not be as horrible today. And third, you could cope with them much better. And then definitely, like you said, little behavioral experiments, little exposures, where you push the bars out an inch and you try something. Let's say you're a little more vulnerable, you're a little more intense, You're a little more willing to be angry if that is something you've really suppressed over the years. You try it out and you see how it goes. And then, what I said, the bonus elements here, when it goes well, and it usually does, now set yourself up to succeed. Don't overreach initially and don't give in to the deeper, well-intended, but tricky parts of ourselves that lead us to sabotage ourselves, to keep us inside the familiar invisible cage. When it goes well, really, really take it in. And you can use the linking step and the heel structure that we've talked about in which the good feelings you get when it goes well can be linked to the old fears and the old negative feelings that you're trying to avoid. In other words, by experiencing, let's say that when you stay in more vulnerable, open, intimate connection with another person and it feels good despite your fears about it. When it feels good, you can be aware of the good feeling of that extra step of closeness that you've been leery of in the past. You can be aware of that good feeling in the foreground of your consciousness, foreground of awareness, well off to the side, are those old feelings maybe related to things that really happened of being shamed or put down or you know made fun of when you were vulnerable and intimate and really close to another person. And because you're aware of both of those at the same time, the positive material in the foreground of your mind will start to associate with the negative material and gradually clear it out to really help you become increasingly free of these dreaded experiences. That's the full package.
0: I think it's a great full package. It's a super useful one. Talking about linking for just a second, That's a whole other episode we can do, and you've talked about it in detail on the podcast in the past. But something I just want to emphasize is that when you're holding the distant sense memory of something that was uncomfortable alongside something that feels really good, a really powerful positive experience, it is so important that the powerful positive experience be really where your focus is your focus is fully on the powerful positive experience. It's not making them equivalent. It's not lingering with the negative. It's, I had this little negative thing. Okay, sure, now let me move my mind toward this extremely powerful positive memory. Blow it up big in my mind and then really let it sink into that so that the next time that that association happens, you are so much more strongly associated with the positive. And the reason that I emphasize that is just about what you were saying a second ago. It is very, very easy for the mind to exaggerate how painful something is going to be. So we want to tread kind of carefully with painful experiences in general, but our dreaded experiences in particular, because these are so developmentally strong for us. So even a drop of the dreaded experience, if you will, needs a lot of powerful positive association to kind of dilute it. So that's the reason that I kind of give that little caveat there.
1: A couple of good questions, I think, that are helpful to people. One is, what do you fear you'd feel if, and then you fill in the blank. What do you fear you'd feel if you made a suggestion at work that other people did not value? What do you fear you'd feel if you asked for more help in your home from your partner to do their fair share of housework and childcare? What do you fear you would feel if? What do you fear you would feel if you were more revealed as a potent, powerful, embodied, even sensual person? And you just kind of go on like that. And I think that's a really good useful question for people. What do you fear you would feel if?
0: Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And it gets us to something that I would love to talk about for a second here. That idea of the sensation we experience versus the thing that is occurring, the event that is occurring out in the world, that really important distinction you drew earlier. One of the things that can help us have a more positive sensation associated with a challenging event is various forms of self-affirmation that we can do kind of ahead of time to build ourselves up for when it happens. One of the practices that My friend group has kind of taken to doing, which is a really wonderful little practice, is that on people's birthday, we'll basically do kind of a compliment circle where everyone will go around and they'll say what they really like about the person. And of course, you know, I've got a specific friend group. It's a friend group where this kind of stuff is considered pretty normal, pretty appropriate. But I strongly recommend it for just about everyone. And you can take that kind of idea and apply it to yourself. What are things that you can write down in a journal related to your dreaded experience that you know to be true? Let's say that again, You're we're using the example of somebody who's afraid of being big in a certain kind of way, big energetically, big in terms of their power out in the world. What could you write down in a journal that would make you feel better about that? Might it have to do with worthiness? Can you write down, I am worthy, or here is why I am worthy, and write three to five things that you know are true? Deep in your heart, that you really know are true, and it can be useful to experience resistance with that exercise. There's a part of me where I say that right now on this podcast, and I start to feel, "Ooh, Forrest, you're sounding like a real personal growthy <laughs> guru type." <laughs> ooh, ooh, you know, and I feel that resistance. Yeah. But I also know I I can feel literally somatically like my body start to get ooh and kind of get warm and like oh, it's an uncomfortable feeling. Right. But I know that it's a useful practice, I've done it myself. Why is there a resistance to expressing that useful practice? And that can be, I think, really helpful for people. Like what are the things where you start to get a little hot somatically, where you start to cringe and become a little uncomfortable, but then you have 10 seconds of separation from it and you look back on it and you go, wait a second, what was wrong about that? And that can be a really good hint as well toward these dreaded experiences and also toward the activities that could help us to unwind to them.
1: What it makes me think about is people being really authentic and wholehearted, their whole self, including all the different subpersonalities they have, all the different rooms in the mansion of the mind, and then being transparent about that. Like whole authentic self, transparently visible. To other people. I think for many people, that is a dreaded experience. There's a lot of associated fear of, oh, what it would be like to be my full authentic self, transparent to other people. And that's an example of something that's really big. And what could be useful for someone to imagine for themselves is, what would I feel if I moved through my day really being my true self, being natural, being authentic, being appropriately social in different kinds of ways, but on the whole, just being my whole self out loud. What's the fear about that? That could get very real for people. Another one I just wanna bring up is a vulnerable request. In almost any kind of relationship, whether it's somebody at work that's fairly superficial or someone that's a family member, or a life partner perhaps, there's probably a vulnerable request that's pending in your relationship of some kind. And it might be a request for more physical affection. It might be a request for feeling more complimented or valued. Maybe it's a request to not feel like you're on the receiving end of a certain amount of skepticism and scrutiny. Or maybe it's a request for less head and more heart from the other person. What do you fear you would feel if you made that vulnerable request? Including, what do you fear you would feel if you made that vulnerable request and the other person turned you down? These are two real ones for many people. Living authentically, being your authentic self and the vulnerable request, yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that up because they're certainly profoundly true for me. And I think that Both of them, maybe on the deepest level, the one about being kind of your fully seen self, your fully realized self, allowing people to be in witnessing of all of the different parts of you and the layers of it and the complexity and the things that, you know, you aren't proud of alongside the things that you are.
1: And the layers, yeah.
0: I I think that that's about as Full as it gets in terms of this idea of the treaded experience, you know.
1: <laughs> we we had this term for us back in the workshop days, you know, when I was leading a bunch of them. That's in the '70s called the cringeometer, the cringiometer. You know, whatever makes you cringe the most is probably where the greatest value is. So that was a that was a full ten on the cringeometer. Oh yeah, for
0: sure. Yeah, that that was a ten on the cringe scale. I mean, I, I honestly, I felt myself kind of getting misty while you were saying it because I was like, "Oof, yeah, for sure." Just on on so many different. There's le-
1: gold in them their hills. That's where the value is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Good clue. Good sign. On so many different levels. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. No. I mean, I I really can't add anything because I think that you just articulated it so beautifully there. Maybe that's another way that you can kind of think about this whole idea of the dreaded experience in total. Like, what are the parts of yourself that you are exiling or not letting other people
1: see or that you feel shame around? Or if you got in touch with, it would take you into a place where you're sort of, as you said, misty and a little falling apart a little bit. Like, that's a dreaded experience for people to feel like they're they're just falling apart. They're not all glued together.
0: They're not composed, yeah. I mean, for me, absolutely. I like being composed. It gets back to kind of the control thing that I was talking about at the beginning. I like to feel like I'm kind of driving the bus of my own emotions. Maybe it's why I like agency so much as a key idea that we share at this podcast. Maybe that's it. That's
1: it. That's right.
0: Because claiming that feels very, very powerful and good to me. But also the flip side of agency, I think, is kind of surrender and having these moments where... You just sort of surrender to the experience and you go, yeah, this is a thing that I'm feeling. And not pushing back against that sometimes is the path to getting more in touch with who we truly are. And for me, that's really what a lot of the dreaded experience is about. It's about who are we really underneath all of the other stuff and what can we do to become more fully that person. So, I don't know if you have anything to add, but I, I don't think <laughs> I think if I talk about this for much longer, I'm going to start to, you know lose the emotional stability. So I don't know, what do you think, Dad?
1: Well, I want to underline the journey you described and how honorable it is, even noble it is. And I want to also mention that the way that the dreaded experience process works often is like a slippery slope. We're afraid that if we get a little misty, for example, then that will lead to a lot of misty. And the next thing we know will just be a puddle. And so to avoid the puddle, not that there's a problem with misty, but to avoid the slippery slope that we think incorrectly is gonna lead to that puddle. We don't get on the slope at all. Mm -hmm. Totally. We've explored this a lot. And maybe I'll just perhaps finish on the thing that's been helpful to me is to feel that I have allies with me when I'm stepping into the dreaded experience, whether it's Luke Skywalker going into the cave to confront Darth Vader, who turns out to be his father. Sorry, spoiler for those who haven't seen (laughs) the movie. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) or for myself, uh, being pushing and pushing on, which I was terrified of being seen in groups, for example. So what I would do in college, I made myself join encounter groups. I made myself, 1% of me knew I needed to do something that 99% of me was screaming and clawing and trying to not do, right? So I put myself in that situation that I knew would make me grow. And then I would grow a little bit from that. And to do that, I did feel like I had allies with me. I had beings who cared about me. I had sort of the wisdom of therapists I knew who just were really crystal clear that I needed to do this. I think- Deep down inside, I probably had a certain ally that's our own natural courage and a kind of moxie that says, crikey, I'm sick of living small here. I'm sick of living in this invisible cage. It's not fair, it's not right, and I'm gonna push those bars back. That internal sense of moxie also is an ally. So people might, after they ask themselves the question, what do I fear I would feel if, they might ask the question, What could I draw upon that would help me risk this fear? Mm, That is a great question.
0: I think it is a wonderful capper for the episode. What could I draw upon as I risk this fear is a great thing to meditate on or think about in your own life and ways that feel really authentic for you. What are the resources that you really, truly deep in your heart know that you have, even if they're just inside of yourself? And yeah, I really enjoyed this one. I thought this was a lovely conversation Dad. And thanks so much for doing it with me.
1: Oh, my pleasure. And I can say so many other things for us, but I'm, I'm really glad that you're engaging this material.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, truly. It's been, you know, one of the really useful parts, I think, of my personal development work in my own life and certainly as a part of kind of your material in the bigger constellation of it that I found just super powerful. So today we had a conversation that I found really, truly, personally useful. We talked about the dreaded experience, which is a concept that Rick introduced to me when I was really pretty young. And it was so helpful in terms of understanding my life and my behavior. Each person's dreaded experience is unique, but they tend to all follow a similar pattern. We start by experiencing an emotion or having a desire. This is generally attached to some form of self-expression, but it can be related to other things as well. Once we have that emotion or that desire, it sparks the belief that there will be some punishment associated with it. Maybe our parents will do something to us. Maybe the other kids in class will laugh at us. Whatever it is, there's an expectation of suffering. And that fear, which is the dreaded experience, causes us to inhibit our behavior. We don't want to risk that dreaded experience, so we become a little smaller. We put ourselves into a shirt that's maybe one size too small. This has a lot of consequences out in the world for our behavior. And over time, those consequences can add up to making us really a different person than the one that we wanted to be when we were young, in ways large and small. Some of the common dreaded experiences include primary negative emotions like shame fear, or sadness and remorse. Some of them are a little bit more psychologically complicated. I gave the example for me of feeling like a bad person. Others might be the fear of abandonment or, hey, maybe even a fear of your own power. Actually your own true nature, what you could actually accomplish out in the world. If you stopped limiting yourself in a variety of ways, Rick made a really essential point here, which is that the dreaded experience is the negative emotion itself. If the kids on the playground start laughing at you, and you kind of find it funny too, and laugh along with them, and there's no pain associated with that experience, it's not a dreaded one. It's the painful emotion that makes a dreaded experience a dreaded experience. These fears come from a variety of different places, but most centrally they tend to come from our developmental experiences, and what happened to us in early childhood. I gave a whole list of questions that people can explore on their own time. But some of the central ones are, what was your relationship like with your parents? What were the experiences that you were permitted or not permitted? And what did you learn about the way that other kids behaved and treated you when you did certain kinds of things? Then we spent the rest of the episode talking about ways to risk the dreaded experience and how we can start unraveling ourselves from that straitjacket. Rick in particular asked a couple of really soulful questions at the end, where he talked about what would it be like to be the fullest version of yourself and be seen in that fullest version. And then alongside that, what is the soulful communication that you haven't made? What is the thing that you want to say to someone else that you haven't said? And what is the fear that's holding you back from that? Because that can be a great indicator of what your dreaded experience is. Alongside that, I found a ton of value in my own life as a kid, a young person, an adolescent, and even as an adult today, just in recognizing what my dreaded experiences are. Then we can start identifying the different ways that the pattern unfolds for us. What are our ways of not risking the dreaded experience? How do we find our avoidant behaviors and what do they look like? Rick talked about not exaggerating the pain and coming more fully into our agency today as adults. Alongside that, I talked about putting yourself in the present moment and recognizing that it is now, not then, and you have different resources in this moment than you did when you were a child. Then, finally, you can start to practice with your dreaded experience. You can perform gentle forms of kind of exposure therapy, where in safe ways, You give yourself an opportunity to gently touch the dreaded experience with someone who you're pretty confident things are going to go well with, and then feel it for a moment and give yourself the experience of it being okay in the end. You weren't hurt. You aren't scared. Everything is okay right now. So thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this episode today. It's truly one of my favorite ones that we've ever done, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. As a quick reminder, registration for Rick's online Foundations of Wellbeing program is now open. The Foundations program is a year-long course in deep personal development that'll teach you how to change your brain in lasting ways. And it'll walk you through how to grow 12 key strengths like courage, confidence, and compassion in your mind and heart. Our holiday sale is going on right now, and podcast listeners can use the code BEINGWELL10 in all caps. That's Being Well as one word and then the number one and zero to get an extra 10% off the purchase price. There are also need-based scholarships available, and if you're a mental health professional, you can get continuing education credits from it as well. If you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can just leave a rating and a positive review. Or join us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast, where for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and receive a bunch of benefits in return. Also, hey, you can always just tell a friend about it. That's one of the best ways to get other people to listen, which really does help us out. So until next time, again, thanks so much for listening.